If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. We're CyberEars.com. Yes, yes, they are. And if you've heard us advertising CyberEars.com as of late, um, it's not uh, a coincidence we, we, we placed the ad there because we moved there. So, if you have been getting this show through Podbean or through iTunes, uh, you might as well get rid of that Podbean, and you are going to want to switch your iTunes feed, because when we switched from Podbean to Cyber Ears, that created a separate Paratopia account in iTunes, so it looks as if there are two. But there can be only one. So... Reset your iTunes feed for the one that has every single episode. That's right. Our Cyber Ears account now has every single episode available for download uh, on iTunes. And hopefully the other one will go the way of the Dodo Bird very, very soon. But until then, it's a little confusing because, as I say, two of them show up in iTunes. And if you're not hearing me right now, you're listening to the wrong one. All right, moving along. And speaking of there can only be one... Highlander! We are here with Colin Reed, round two! You know... It's sort of like, you know... When are these Scots gonna wake up and realize they're just Irish and dumber kilts? Sorry. My my views don't represent those of Jeff Ritzman or, or Paratopia. Uh, Colin Reed, everybody. Colin Reed. This is part de of de. He gives us more ways to look at crazy, esoteric, paranormal phenomena. Um, I get what he's doing here. It's I'm no I'm no dummy. He's basically saying that no matter how you look at this phenomena, from shamanism to Jungian archetypes, to chaos magic, to physics, whatever your approach, dream interpretation, dream analysis, whatever it is, when you look at this from these multiple perspectives, you see that these multiple perspectives have two things in common. One, that they're different languages describing the same thing, and two, that if you bring any one of them to their natural conclusion, it does not answer everything. So isn't that weird? I mean, I don't think he literally says that in these two episodes, but I I think it's in there. Um, If you were to follow Chaos Magic all the way through to the end, you would not have any better a handle on the paranormal than if you followed theoretical physics through to, you know, several ends within. Um, Or Jungian archetypal discoveries. I mean, any of these things, any of these sort of paths into the paranormal or windows into this paranormal thing, on the surface they look like completely different things, right? I mean, physics? Chaos magic? Young? What? How do these go together? But then, when you actually put them in context and you you see what the various things being described uh, and the way the universe works through each description you see that there are similarities, and yet none of these things provide the answer to what this is. They all approach it, but if you follow them to their logical conclusions, 
there is no logical conclusion at the end of the path. So fancy that, fancy this, here's Colin Reed. So we've sort of got a model here, or at least I've been thinking of this as being a sort of a model for what I'm going to call the self-editing secret self, or, the, you know, the inner voice, if you want to call it that. And for the purposes of this, I'm sort of going to look back at my experiences and say, you know, hypothetically, all of these vision, these well, visions, I'm seeing, I'm, I'm seeing visions, all of these sort of... um encounters and experiences that I've had with these shadow visions, these bloody cardboard cutout pictures of reality, where, you know, somebody's chopped a hole in reality and it looks like a figure. Again, the idea that, well, the self-editing secret self, that there's some internalised intelligence within ourselves, which comes out from time to time, and possibly uh, edits these things out. It's it's almost like that thing about the government documents, whereby, you know, all the, all the juicy stuff about, you know, crashed UFOs or whatever is all blacked out. You know, it's almost like there is this sort of intelligence that exists within our psyche that we perhaps never really understand. I'm not schooled in psychology or anything like that, really, or psychoanalysis. You know, this is just based on, you know, a lot of stuff I've read and heard about. And we can go into mind control in a bit, which is something else I've actually been researching prior to coming to all of this, because, you know, I was, I'm writing a book that sort of has to do with, you know, mind control. So I was researching a lot of that sort of thing. If you want to go into MKUltra and, you know, all that crazy, you know, brainwashing stuff, uh, CIA doping people with LSD and sticking nails in their fingers and trying to convince them that they're psychic spies, you know, all that sort of thing. If you break down the layers of people's personalities, you know, there's a you get everything back to a core personality or a core individual self. And maybe at some deep, deep buried level, there is this other intelligence, this other person that lies within. And this takes me to this idea of what is inside is outside, which is something I sort of came up with years ago. I, it's not a real, I'm sure somebody else has said it, you know, this is something I sort of wrote a thing about. Uh, so the idea being is that what is inside is outside. Uh, if there's aliens, they come from our minds. If there's ghosts, they, they come from the buried psyche. My approach at the moment, you know, if you could call it an approach to sort of thinking about magic, you know, it's more like uh, abstract, random, or or chance magic, or, or lackadaisical, laissez-faire, you know, approach, whereby I don't think about it too much, and I just sort of, if something synchronous or interesting happens, then I pay attention to it. Uh, and Peter Carroll said that the, the altered states of consciousness are the, are the key to unlocking one's magical abilities. And these abilities can be developed without any symbolic system except reality itself. And he also calls chaos magic a kind of scientific anti-science. So not really wanting to blabber on about magic all that much more. Uh, the broader scope of thinking about magic is all about a ritual uh, and technique. And, and visualization, you know, and, and the summoning up or creating of entities and going into altered states of consciousness. If that's what magic if that's what magic is about, then the contact experience, be it with you know beings of any kind in any sort of a context, is very similar. There's a degree of the I said earlier about the shamanistic process and you go into the sort of Aboriginal cultures or cultures or Native American cultures, Celtic cultures, whereby there's a witch doctor or whatever would, you know, go into this altered state of consciousness and would commune with higher ascended beings. 
and gain a degree of knowledge and come back to the world with his knowledge. Often there was a thing about whereby the shaman would be changed in some way and have a sort of a sacred stone inserted into his body. And that ties in with, you know, alien abductions and implants and all that sort of thing, because there's a massive amount of correlation when you actually start to look at all these this sort of traditional shamanistic uh, journey. And maybe that's the process of life, this transmutation of lead into gold, a constant sort of process of self-improvement. And there's another thing here that says that chaos magic is, you know, based on individualistic anti-politicism or even anarchy. And uh, it's almost like it is. It's a, it's about the chaotic nature of it. And like I was saying about my own experiences, they don't really make sense. And that is the problem that is coming to the crux of any sort of anomalous experience is that very often they don't make any sense at all whatsoever. And, you know, I think I heard, actually it was Whitley Strieber talking on some, one of, I think it was on his Dreamland show a fair while back, and he was talking about how the thing that marks out uh, authentic accounts of paranormal phenomena and UFO stuff is that they are uh, so weird they can't possibly be made up. And I think that's the case, you know, I mean, it's that's why I think a lot of us are so sort of sceptical about the whole Space Brother or channeling the sort of the galactic, you know, empire and the whole sort of Star Trek style federation. And you go into the whole exopolitical stuff and all these 57 alien races in the world, you know, out in the universe wanting to bring us into their... Or even if you go into the paranoid, you know, reptilian stuff, you know, it all seems so science fictiony, you know, and it feels like there's clear sort of explanations for everything. And it all sort of hangs together and makes sense. You know, there are these definitely bad aliens that are coming to hurt us. And there are the definitely good aliens who are working with us and trying to ascend us. And it just, you know, that sort of thing just, I don't know. Unless you're actually experiencing it as as fact, then, you know, it doesn't really seem to hold up. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's evocation, you know, which is another magical thing, you know, which is working with spirits or entities and Chaos Magic talks about how they you know, can be part of the subconscious or they can come from, you know and it, there's another quote there from this is Peter Carroll again, actually, this is from his book, uh, Liber KKK and he talks about evocation being something that you can do according to your taste and belief structure which uh, rather casually ends the debate about where these things come from, wherever you want them to come from. Like, it almost doesn't matter. It's just, it's irrelevant. It's whatever you want them to be. It almost seems irrelevant. <laughs> it's like, if you want to, you know, decide that you can talk to aliens, then you can. <laughs> and, they, and they will show up because they come out of your head. They're not really aliens. If you want them to be little grey aliens, then you could make them like that and they would show up. Or if you wanted them to be fairies, you could commune with the fairies and try and get an answer out of them. All right, so we've got this idea with Chaos Magic about basically working with these servitors, which are, you know, things that basically you conjure up out of your mind, which for a lot of people might sound like, you know, nonsense, but uh, it's 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 definitely an interesting sort of thing to look at, you know, as a sort of theoretical model with for working with things. There's also stuff about going through the shamanistic illumination of self-knowledge, you know, in the quest for self-renewal or self-improvement, and this was what I was talking about earlier, and... um. There's a sort of a traditional sort of death and rebirth experience in which, you know, you're, you, you and that that was certainly what I felt I was going through through this, you know, this thing with the alien doctors. 
And of all the other things I've talked about, they all felt rather broken up and I couldn't see this correlation between them. And that ties in with that idea of the trickster. It's like, these things don't make any sense. Where is the pattern in them? Is it just something fucking with us? What is the force that's throwing these things out and just saying, ha ha, here's something really weird for you to be puzzled by and to worry about for years and years. These principles and methods, they seem to make a lot of sense to me, even though I've never actively done them. But just again, because I'm starting to see the patterns that sort of work when you look at magic in comparison to supernatural stuff. Chaos magic is about removing the ego from the from the process and removing desire and lust from the process of conjuration, which also is a bit like this sort of thing about summoning creatures or summoning beings. It's like if you think too much about it, you know, then, then it starts to happen and it's not necessarily what you want, you know. And, um, I mean, that's the thing I was thinking really is that uh, are we conjuring these things without knowing it? Like, even if you aren't someone who messes about with magic, which even though I haven't been doing it, I've been thinking about it a lot in the last few weeks. And, you know, I've seen sort of just the whole trickster thing, to bring that up again, you know, about this change being introduced into static systems. I've really, you know, been seeing an incredible amount of peculiar stuff happening in my life in the last month or so just to do with work really and people I work with and you know stuff going on at work and my personal life as well uh which I don't need to go into here but just 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 things that you know are sort of unexpected I suppose would be the the way I describe them you know little things that are happening and um I think there is a correlation with looking at how this thing works about chaos magic and about um uh, communion with this phenomena and intense meditation and, and and when I say communion and meditation I don't mean in the sense that I've been meditating or or thinking very deeply about this in any sense and I haven't you know casting any spells or doing any weird ritual magic or anything but it's been preoccupying me quite a bit so consequently you know I start to see these connections emerging and I start to relate things that are happening to me to this phenomena and to these unexplained things and to chaos magic. So this leads me to wanting to talk about sigil magic. You know, we've already been through the servitors. So sigil magic uh, was broadly invented by Austin Osmond Spear, who was kind of the guy who invented chaos magic from what I understand. And the key of um, creating this magic, uh, you've got to reach a state of vacuity. Uh, which apparently, uh, this is all, you know, um, well, I'll mention this in a moment, but you've, you've got to basically um, do something uh, that then leads to you forgetting the very intention of the spell. You, so you've got to let it free to work its way into the fabric of the world. You know, you've got to send your desire out. So you, if you want something, this is the whole thing about, you know, ego gratification, you know, but I mean, I was just saying there, it's about getting rid of the ego, but it's more about understanding how your ego works. So if you want to do something, like if you want to get a new job, or if you want to win the lottery, if you want to meet the person of your dreams and fall in love, you've got to, you know, create a sigil and send your desire out. And to equate this again with computer terminology, it's like it's broadly like sending an email to the universe. And the idea is you've got to f forget them after you've sent, after you've charged your sigil. And you must not, under any circumstances, you know, have any doubt that what you're going to do will fail because you've got to always believe that it will work uh you've got to have this will you know this self-belief you know and that's to you know work with the energies of the universe because if you don't if you don't believe it then it won't work and that's probably my problem is that i don't really believe this sort of thing too much 
but yet I have seen things recently in my life which sort of point me in the direction of believing that, you know, this sort of thing is possible, you know, and that, you know, if you look very deeply into these sort of issues and, and think a lot about how magic works in the world, then you start to see the sort of connectivity that emerges from, you know, delving into these topics. Uh, so it's a, it's a sort of self-sabotage if you don't believe in it. And uh, the thing you want to achieve or realise must at least be within the realms of possibility as well. If you do a spell to win the lottery, it might be helpful if you actually go out and buy a ticket. You know, you've got to be within the realms of, of possibility so that, you know, it's, it's about sort of nudging the universe into working with you. So the same thing if you want to go and meet the person of your dreams, you know. It's not much use if you stay in the house. You know, you've got to go to a bar or whatever or a park or some other place where people are likely to socialise. You've got to cast a spell first and then, you know, you've got to do the magical thing. Then you've got to do the thing in the real world which will interact with that magical exercise. And then, you know, you can push all the atoms of the universe into the right place for this sort of self-improvement process to work. And the way I understand the basic principles of this is it's a bit like, yeah, it's like, it's like giving reality a nudge in the right direction. But again, there has to be some sort of give and take between you and reality. <laughs> um, and the whole thing about, I mean, I'm sure there's people out there who will probably know all about this. But, you know, I just, I, I really wanted to talk about this mainly because it's not something that's been mentioned. I don't think anyone's talked about this on Paratopia before. So I just felt that maybe I should bring it up, you know, just out of interest to see what other people think, you know, so... So the basics for creating a sigil, you know, a sigil in this instance is it's it's a sort of a magical symbol, right? It is a symbol of your intent. It is a, a focusing of your will, you know, in the form of a sort of a pictograph. So you've got to write down what you desire, right? So you've got to write out, it is my desire to, insert desire here. So you, you write the phrase out like, I want to meet the person of my dreams tomorrow or whatever. And then you've got to, oh, I want to win, you know, two million quid on the lottery. Or I want to get a great job, you know, that, that I would really enjoy. So you've got to write this down in proper English or whatever your language is. And then what you're supposed to do is remove the vowels from the word. You've got to then remove the repeating letters. Uh, and then you've got to take what you've got left, which will just be like a nonsense word, take the spaces out, make it into one word... Uh, and then you've got to turn it, I think Grant Morrison described it as spooky looking. So you've got to make it looking, you've got to take this uh, word that you've got now in front of you, where you've taken out the vowels and the repeating letters, and you've got to transform it into a spooky looking, looking piece of graffiti, you know, of an image, or there's other sort of theories that describe it as you can turn it into a chant, a euphonious chant. So you can turn it into a sort of a meditative chant. So that's the thing whereby if you're going to meditate, then you sit and you you chant this word. So it might be uba juba juba, you know, some, you know, or om om padme hum or whatever the, the the meditation words are, you know, om shanti, you know. So you've got to take this word that you've created and turn it into a piece of you know a chant or a little piece of graffiti. So you squash up the letters, you you take the letters that you've got in front of you and turn it into a little symbol. And then once you've got this symbol, this sigil, this um, sort of personification, this pictographic representation of your desire that you have, that you want to use to improve yourself, uh, then you've got to charge the sigil. And the best way to do that apparently is through uh, masturbation, so Grant Morrison says anyway, that's apparently the best way to do it, or 
uh, various other things like ritual dancing, you know, chanting, drumming, you know, extreme strenuous activity, your sex magic, if you want to go into the crazy sort of Alistair Crowley more sort of stuff, you know, so you got to charge this intent with your own desire and your will. And then once you've charged it, then you've, cre- you've, you've created the magic, you've sent it out into the universe, you've released it, and then you've got to just forget all about it, and you've got to let it go into the universe to work. The way this is described, it's, it's really it's DIY magic. You know, it can be personal to you. It doesn't matter what the sigil is, it doesn't matter what the picture looks like or the chant is, and you are the only one who needs to understand it. You know, this is really like a conversation between the universe and you. You know, as I said earlier, it's about sending emails out to the universe. You know, if you, if you send an email to the universe and say, hey, universe, I want this thing. Can you give it to me? And then you forget all about it. And then the, the universe emails you back. This is sort of a personal thing. It's nothing to do with having wands or any of that nonsense or, I don't know, or conjuring up demons by reading, you know, very long, complicated texts from, you know, ancient sort of forbidden books, books of the damned or anything like that. And as I was saying, right, so I think that was broadly sigil magic described and the whole idea of servitors as well as being beings you can cut someone up, which is a different sort of method. Uh, and Grant Morrison has always also written about a thing called pop magic, which is the idea of doing... It's a similar sort of process to chaos magic, but really the idea being it's it's even more DIY in that you summon up things that work for you. Like the idea is you could summon up a, up a pop star, you know, <laughs> or your favourite, you know... Act TV actor or something like that, you know, to be your sort of magical guide or your sort of shamanistic totem animal. Instead of that, you could have Madonna or something like that. And you could summon up these the, the sort of the sort of psychic imprint of you know these people's sort of creative impulse or whatever, and you could summon that up and use that as your guide and communicate with the magical force of the universe in that way. There's another guy called Christopher Penzak who wrote a book called City Magic. Uh, and he, in turn, you know, he credits Grant Morrison, you know, this comics writer guy, as being an, an influence. And that's more about working, if you live in a city, you can work with of the code of the city. You know, you can interact with things he calls neon divas, which are like the industrial sort of underpinnings of how a city works. And, you know, you can work with uh, underpasses, you know, and subways and the sort of the spirits and the gods that work within these subways and you know that's the thing it's almost like it's like it's like fiction really it's like it's process the idea of being that you make it up as you go along and you you sort of work with this sort of mystical force that works within you know the universe in chaos magic anyway and that sort of drags me right back around here we are coming back to my own experiences what i was talking about earlier is this is a question that i really wound up asking is this something that comes from within or without and I said earlier, what is inside is outside, which was a sort of a conclusion I'd come to in thinking about this. So we have the sort of the crux that brings it together for me. You know, all these experiences, you know, and all these things I've sort of been looking into here when I was talking about chaos magic, you know, and, and well, I haven't really got into synchronicity yet. And then there's quantum superposition and the many worlds theory and the implicate order and sort of crazy sort of quantum science concepts about parallel dimensions, you know. Uh, is it inside or outside? Right, so coming back around to, you know, like I said, there's this idea about the inside and the outside. You've got George Heyer, who came up with the psychosocial or the psychocultural hypothesis, you know, which was really saying that UFOs are basically 
not UFOs, but they're things that are made up by us. They come out of psychological reasons. And Carl Jung picked up on this in Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the skies. Uh, and Jung was kind of the guy who sort of popularised the psychocultural hypothesis in ufological terms, and in the same text brought in synchronicity, and a more broadly paranormal look at UFOs. So... There was that whole idea I mentioned, I thought mentioned this a bit now, that aliens and UFOs could be just the creation of our, you know, our minds. And that's not to say that they haven't real, of course not. And, you know, these glitches in the Matrix are sort of pointing us in a particular other direction. Do they come out of our minds or do they come out of other parallel universes? So here we go plunging into that good old-fashioned, impossible-to-understand quantum theory, quantum entanglement, spooky action at a distance, quantum non-local connection, collapsing wave functions, which is all stuff I've been trying to read about recently. You know, I, I very stupidly went on Wikipedia and tried to read about quantum entanglement. And, you know, like I said, I've got no knowledge of science, really. I'm not a mathematician person, you know, really not. I'm a writer, so I find all this mathematical stuff very difficult to get my head around. In the same way that I find Chaos Magic very difficult in my head around. But absurdly, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've really been pointed in this direction. You know, I mean, I've been working a seven day week, you know, and working a hard job. <laughs> so I've had hardly any time, but I've been desperately trying to work at, you know, researching this show. So then stupidly, I then went and looked up Quantum Entanglement and, you know, Chaos Magic at the same time. And I've had a lot of reading to do, most of which I haven't done yet. <laughs> So I apologise at this point if any of this show is becoming quite disconnected and sort of rambly, but I wanted to get through it all, and if this is going to be the second part of it, then hopefully you're still with me at this point. So uh, we've been through the whole sort of case magic stuff, and I'm going to sort of talk a bit about quantum entanglement. Uh, you've got quantum non-local connection, you've got this collapsing wave functions, which sort of give us many the many worlds theory or the brain theory. This is something, you know, again, which Grant Morrison has written quite a bit about in some of his comic stuff, which I'm quite obsessed with. You know, the whole idea of parallel universes. I mean, sure, we all know about how that works. You know, if you've read science fiction, there's a million things in science fiction and comics and TV and stuff that deal with parallel universes. And this has now been coming into the scientific mainstream. Uh, the brain theory is the whole idea about, well, the many worlds theory, I think it's called now which is all infinite parallel universes caused by every potentiality branching off. So, you know, every second there's another universe comes to pass and there's billions of them, and mul or the multiverse, as you might want to call it, which is really a big sci-fi comic book term, which people are, you know, taking seriously as terminology. And there's all that stuff about the place of the observer, you know, in the quantum experiment and Schrodinger's cat, you know, is it dead? Is it alive? You know, who killed it? Uh, the nature of I killed it. The nature of mind-body dualism and superposition. So it allows for all that great stuff, you know. I mean, if all this is scientifically plausible, then it, it, it basically quantum entanglement and uh, the implicate order that basically all allows for, you know, that means that it, parallel universes. That's fine. Uh, it means time travel works. Yep, that's fine. Interstellar transportation, telepathy. Yep, that's all good. Uh, Information being sent through time and space, you know, I said the implicate order, that's where particles are sentient. Uh, and from there you go into a whole ton of New Age thinking. Deepak Chopra did stuff on this, you know. Uh, and this, I think this is a Wikipedia quote, actually. Uh, prior, to the many, prior to many worlds, reality had been viewed as a single unfolding history. 
Many worlds, rather, views reality as a many-branched tree where every possible quantum outcome is realized. Uh, uh, many worlds' main conclusion is that the universe, or multiverse in this context, is composed of a quantum superposition of very many, possibly even, this is good, and non-denumerably, infinitely uh, many increasingly divergent, non-communicating parallel universes or quantum worlds. So, I read that as basically saying anything's possible. You know, science says anything works, anything goes. <laughs> you know, all those comic book stories about parallel universes and stuff, that's all real, that's all fine, you know. I mean, I don't really see how scientific it is to say just about anything's possible, but there you go, it is theoretical physics anyway, isn't it? So if anything's possible and we take it back to the parapsychological phenomena, I mean, I'm not sure if that's a word, parapsychological, that is a word, right? I mean, I'm using that term in this instance, uh, broadly implying this idea that I've been mentioning, that it's inside rather than outside. So we've got the parallel universes thing, and then we've got the idea that supernatural phenomena comes out of our heads put those two things together we've got what goes on in our minds the possibilities of evocation and invocation and summoning up spirits and bringing these potential supernatural beings into reality and then we bring in the idea of quantum mechanics and superposition in the idea if there's an infinity of parallel universes then do these things come from our heads do they come from the parallel universes anything's possible here right it's looking that way from what I've come. I've stumbled my way to this point or this, this grand revelation that anything's possible. <laughs> Skepticism sort of collapses here or it can collapse, you know, and be crushed under the weight of infinite possibility. And then there's the quantum mind body problem. Who's of what's consciousness allows for the observing of this universe? We bring God into it. Hello, God, how are you? Does consciousness create the universe, or does the universe create us? Is there this God force that exists? Are these things coming from that? And is this God force deep within our own psyches? So from trying to get my head around that, to bring in a bit of computer phraseology, right? Uh, this file has either been moved or deleted. Do you want us to locate it? And that made me think of, like, you know, non-locality, you know, and the idea of particles interacting, you know, across time-space. And where has the file been moved to? Has it been deleted? You know, these files that are cropping up, files, you know, in this instance being aliens, spaceships, ghosts, poltergeists. Where are these files going? Or more importantly, where are they coming from? Right, and now this 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 thing here is numbered number 10, but I, I don't think it was going in any sort of an order now. So you've got death and the false apocalypse. Dreams, synchronicity, astral travel, and psychic dream-watching. This is the main bit I was wanting to get into earlier, and I sort of stumbled my way to it. So, either these experiences for me are bleeding through from another universe, which makes me think if any of you out here have you know seen that TV series Fringe recently, which really seems to be going into this sort of stuff, albeit in a bit of a knockabout sci-fi style-y. And the premise is pretty much about marginal ideas bleeding into the mainstream and things from other universes and parallel other versions of people. This might be evidence of a side effect of trickster phenomena, uh, reality becoming self-aware, you know, or this, this intelligence becoming self-aware and leading us into up to 2012 and the Trixed Apocalypse. There's a new one for the dictionary. 
or it's bleeding through from another universe. Uh, no, I already, I already said that. I've written that twice just to confuse me. So it's either coming from another universe or another universe or another one of the infinite universes or it's in our minds or both or neither or all of the above. The trickster strikes again, preventing us from understanding anything at all. And going back to another random sort of science fiction reference, which I had written down here, uh, you know, Doctor Who. Does anyone know Doctor Who? I'm sure you do. If you're in, if you're British, you'll know Doctor Who. Right, and Doctor Who, uh, uh, the new Doctor Who, the resurrected Doctor Who TV series, has a current spin-off series called The Sarah Jane Adventures, which may be a children's show, right, but having seen a few episodes of it, they have a character in there called the Trickster, yes, uh, who is this rather freaky sort of cloaked being with no face, which is interesting in many ways. Uh, and this character shows up from time to time and creates divergent timelines seemingly purely for a laugh, just to mess about with the central character, Sarah Jane. Uh, you know, and that's the whole thing about changing to static systems, you know, but what was my point here? <laughs> Dreams and synchronicity, right. I'm trying to follow my notes here. The problem with this was that I had a vast amount of notes and I wanted to try and stick to them, but then I'm going off on tangents here. Aha, right, now I know where we're going now. Right, we're going now into uh, what I mentioned earlier about um, dreams and dream synchronicities and psychic dream walking and the idea of using your own dreams to try and decode your own reality. And like Chaos Magic, this is almost like a system for working with the universe in a sort of mystical way. And it's a, a very personal thing. And the whole thing about keeping a dream journal, right, which is something you can do, which I first uh, did back in 2005 I made a very conscious effort to start doing this because I was having a lot of really weird dreams and you know you can ignore your dreams which I've been doing in the last few years I mean I started this diary up in 2005 and um, I kind of abandoned it after about six months because it was too much work basically uh, really what it came down to was uh, the sort of impetus for that that sort of kicked me off on thinking about this was I read a book by a guy called Frank Joseph, who, you know, some of you might have heard of. He's written quite a few books, I think. He's, I think he's really big into sort of archaeology and stuff like that. But he wrote a book called Synchronicity and You, which I came across about five years ago. And in that book, he has a sort of a system for sort of working with decoding your dreams. Uh... Yeah, I mean, doing a dream journal is quite a freaky thing to do because it can sort of weird you out and sort of radically change the way you look at reality. Hence the fact that I, I put this book, I basically, and this is similar to magic in many ways. Is if you're sort of a magician, you're supposed to keep a journal of what your 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 workings, like if you're casting spells and stuff, and and you're supposed to write it all down and record what you're doing and record the outcome and the result of the magical spell and whether it failed or not or whether it took off you know whether you know exactly what you got out of it you know and if you read a bit about Alistair Crowley who's somebody who wrote a tremendous amount of sort of weird things that you did like there was this incident again talking about Loch Ness coming back again you know I mean I'm in that sort of region now the Highlands and you know Alistair Crowley was in Loch Ness uh back in I think it was in the 20s I'm not sure about the exact date but um you know, he was in Beleskin House, which is this place on the shores of Loch Ness. And I think, I may be completely wrong here, I might have got my dates mixed up, but I think it was in Beleskin House on Loch Ness where he summed up the, you know, he did this thing called the Babylon working, I think it was, where he supposedly, sum, you know, summed up this demonic creature called Lamb. 
like I said, I might be wrong, but you know, it, the, there was this time where he summoned up. I don't know if it was specifically in, at Loch Ness he summoned this creature up, but you know, Lamb, L A M, you know, this was this. There's a drawing he did of it, and this is this creature that he summoned up that yes, looked like, as a certain you know other radio presenter who's probably well known to everybody in America would describe as the typical grey alien. And um, yeah, so talking about that. Uh, where was I now? Yeah, the whole thing about summoning up creatures and stuff like that. And uh, so, so I read this book by Frank Joseph, right? And doing the dream journal. Uh, so this idea of self-improvement through dream analysis ties in with self-understanding and betterment of the self, which again is to do with chaos magic and summoning things up and changing yourself for the good or better. Chaos magic does a similar thing. Aliens do a similar thing. You know, the trickster does a similar thing. And looking at dreams, if you just want to try and work with dreams, then they can do a very similar thing. Now, earlier I mentioned recurring dreams, you know, and I, I talked about those typical anxiety dreams and those sort of Freudian sort of things about, you know, forgetting your lines or being in school or, you know, turning up naked something or whatever like that. Now, I have a thing that I've been dreaming about for a long, long time now, which I call the Hospimol. Now, now this is a sort of a putting together of two words, which is hospital and mall, because I dream about this place, which I am regularly in, which is between, you know, a gigantic sort of vast shopping centre or a mall and a hospital. Uh, there's a very specific sort of, you know, details about it, you know, in this place I'm in and I, uh, when I in meet and interact with people in this place, when I'm dreaming, you know, I mean, once again, coming back to the, you know, cynical sort of, you know, sceptical side, these are just dreams I'm talking about, you know, and these are just recurring dreams I have, maybe anxiety based, you know, in that I dream about being in a place that's quite like a hospital and it's also quite like a shopping centre and, it, and, and, and it's huge and vast and sort of this could be something that could be coming out of the deep unconsciousness, you know. I mean, I know this is a thing that is common, I think, to a lot of people who dream, you know, about stuff. And like I said, about the school dream being common. But I dream at the hospital, which it'd be interesting to hear. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to be going on the message boards after this goes out, probably. If people want to just criticise me for talking complete and utter nonsense, that's, that'd be great. You know, <laughs> That'd be feedback. But, you know, I'd like to hear about the same sort of recurring dreams the Paratopian people are having. I've tried to read a lot of the message boards recently, but like I say, you know, Trickster Phenomena doesn't let me have any internet connection because I'm in the Highlands. So I have to go to a sort of, I have to go to a, a another sort of hotel where I can use the internet. And, you know, I've got really limited access. So, um... About the sort of thing about recurring dreams, you know, I mean, there's another person, Michelle Belanger, who's written a bit about psychic dream walking, and she's someone who describes herself as a psychic vampire, you know, which is quite an interesting way of looking at the idea of feeding off of other people's sort of psychic states, you know, and um, she describes dream psychic dream walking as being something people do as a survival technique. And the idea is that in your dreams, you visit people you either do or do not know. And you perhaps feed off them vampirically, you know, and you, 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 you siphon off their their psychic energy in order to nourish yourself. And she says also our dreams work as wish fulfillment. Uh, and if you're dream walking, then you're you're sort of interacting with spirits and you're interacting possibly on a psychic level with people, you know, and and you sort out your internal problems and issues. You solve them in the dream state. Going back to the Frank Joseph thing, right, the book by him, which I read called Synchronicity and You, which led me in the direction of creating a dream journal, 
which, like I say, I tie into Chaos Magic and I tie into this idea of parallel universes and quantum mechanics. And I tie back to, you know, my personal experiences with this, where I've, you know, seen these weird sort of cut-out shadow people in strange sort of circumstances, and I tie back into the you know, shamanistic dream journey where I met the alien doctors, right? Which was like a dream, but was closer to some interaction with reality. So what I basically did when I started to try to analyze my own dreams, I will go through now. Right, so I have now dug out my special um, sort of notebook uh, from five odd years ago, which I still write stuff in from time to time. You know, I mean, as I say, I'm a writer, so I'm always sort of scrawling down notes, you know, here and there. Uh, and this book that I had was originally sort of supposed to be a, a dream journal. And in it, uh, I have, I've drawn a little diagram here. Uh, and above it, I've written the way of the book, which sounds like some strange magical thing. But, you know, I basically had this idea. You've got the real life events, which is the real world. You've got the dream life events, uh, which is basically stuff you dream about. And in the middle, you've got synchronicity. And synchronicity connects these two things. You know, you've got the dream life and the real life. And these two things are intimately interconnected. So as I said, this came from based on uh, stuff written in the book by Frank Joseph. And um, <clears throat> if I just flick to the back of the book where I wrote down, yeah, this was it. He writes about uh, classifications of meaningful coincidence, right? It, it's to do with stuff that you see in dreams and how that relates to stuff that you see in your real life. There are inanimate objects, right? If you have a dream, uh, you will see inanimate objects, and these will be involved in a-causal incidents, you know, and there'll be numbers, right? You might see numbers that will have some sort of a significance, you know, in your own life and your own destiny. There will also be environmental and animal ostenta. Now, ostenta being the Latin word derived from the Etruscan term for signs and portents in the natural environment that prefigure coming events. Meteorologic, geologic and biological events sometimes interact with human affairs in ways beyond their material reality. So, I mean, he mentions this list of about, um, you know, 17-odd things that um, pop up in dreams. You know, you've got, like I said, I mentioned those few things there, but you've also got premonition, which is seeing things. You know, obviously premonition is, you know, having a vision of something before it happens. You've got precognitive dreams, yeah, which is kind of the same thing. Telepathy, that's, you know, dreaming the same thing someone else dreams. Uh, enigmas, just mysterious stuff origins which is meaningful coincidences so that's like you know you dream about you know like i said i mentioned the hospital which is my own sort of strange creation of this place i dream that i go to and parallel lives is about things happening between other people life imitates art so as a writer you know i'm quite pretentiously looking at that sort of thing you know like i'll write something and then you know you relate that to something that happens in real life you'll get warnings and you'll get death now these two so don't uh, point me now, I want to just recite another sort of dream that I had, which was almost like a sort of a precognitive dream, almost. This is the sort of thing that, you know, sort of stopped me making this dream diary, actually, because it weirded me out too much. A couple of dreams I had about oof, four years ago or something. Actually, no, it was probably while I was doing this book, about five years ago. These were basically like sort of near-death experiences, but not similar to my alien doctor's experience. I'm really going to sort of crazy territory here, you know, you're gonna you're gonna think by this point I've completely lost it, I think. And that I'm, you know, a questionable character. But you know, I'd had these couple of dreams 
Uh, I have them from time to time now, which are almost like precognitive dreams or visions of my own death. Uh, I'm sure everybody has dreams like this from time to time, but the first one was I was with my brother, actually, and a, a friend, a guy I used to work with. We are in a jeep, I think, or some sort of a car, and we were, you know, going along in this, this jeep, and all of a sudden we went off a cliff. And I, I vividly recall the sort of sensory impressions and the sort of emotions from this dream, and, you know, it was very sort of lucid and clear to me. And we recall go, I recall going off this cliff. I remember silence of going off the cliff and the jeep just going out there and the wheels spinning and thinking, you know, oh, we've gone off a cliff now, that's it, we're going to die. You know, and it was there was a very clear knowledge I had. I'm I'm dead now. This this thing's going to crash down and explode, and I'm going to be dead. And that's the sort of dream whereby you just you wake right up from that, and it's you know really shocking because you have to remind yourself, oh, thank God I'm not dead. You know, it was just a dream. And you know, it like I said, it was just a dream. But you have dreams like this from time to time that are very you know clear. And again, applying this back to Frank Joseph classifications of meaningful coincidence, if you want to use this as a sort of a method for decoding your dreams, the idea being is that you're supposed to, you know, you write down the the details of the dream in one colour. You get your special coloured pens out for this one. You know, you write the details of the dream down in one colour, and then you know you write a sort of you know analysis of what the dream might be about. I might have adapted this for my own purposes, actually. You know, one colour is a, is a sort of literal description of the dream. Another colour is of, you know, your interpretations of it uh, and understandings of it. And another colour would be how things are going on in your real life possibly relate to and synchronicity and synchronously. Right, I've lost that word now. Synchronously, you know, interact with what was going on in the dream. So there's a synchronicity between what happens in the real life and your dream life. And this is almost like a sort of a weird shamanistic process whereby you're communicating with, you know, the other side, you know. And again, it's spirit mediums or whatever. You can apply this sort of thinking to all these things, to chaos magic or to parallel universes or to ghosts or to aliens, you know, whatever you're dealing with. You can sort of think about this as it's the self communicating with the other, the unseen, the hidden, you know, the shadow side, the secret self, the other, the self-editing, you know, inner personality. If you want to look at it like this, and I'm seeing these, you know, sort of parallels between these different sort of ways of thinking about this. So that was the one dream about dying, and there was another one I recall which was really sort of abstract and weird and had to me to do with me, you know, sort of falling out of a window and dying and then sort of spinning around and rotating and, and being shot up to the heavens, which is quite abstract and weird, as I said, you know, but I, I, I was working night shift at the time in a hotel and occasionally, you know, about sort of four in the morning, I used to wander outside the hotel for a cigarette break, even though I don't smoke, but you've got to take a cigarette break, even if you don't smoke. So I'd wander outside the hotel and I'd peer up at the night sky and here in the Highlands, you know, in this really sort of clear atmosphere that we have out here, you can see the Aurora Borealis, you know, if it pops up, you know, sometimes. And it's an incredibly clear sky. So I used to look up at the constellations and pick out the Pleiades, you know, where the aliens come from, as we all know that, you know, and see Orion's belt and stuff like that. So in this weird dream, I sort of felt like I'd been killed and I was being shot up to Orion, you know. <laughs> I was being fired up to the heavens, and you can sort of think that this is all just, you know, crazy sort of bias and 
informational overload and you know sort of i've read all stuff about the pyramids and you know all this egyptian mythology and stuff like that and i've been writing stuff about that you know in sort of a fictional context as well so i i again it was a weird sort of death experience the sense i had from this dream that i had died and that you know i was being fired up to the heavens so that, that's that's two little weird dreams that i had and relating that back to, like I said, it was just as a consequence that, you know, I was out looking at the stars and looking at Orion's belt and then having this crazy dream whereby I died and got fired up to the heavens. So there's nothing in that necessarily. You know, it's just something happens in your life and then you dream about it. Uh, so going back to the French of classifications, I was at warnings and death, wasn't I? Uh, and then there's rescue which is the timely arrival of a-causal events that help avoid danger. And this is quite abstract stuff, but it depends on how you apply it. It depends on what you're dreaming about. Uh, reincarnation, you know, that's another thing. If you dream about being someone else. Guidance, uh, which is about, well, that's it. The same thing, you get signs in your dreams that point you in a particular direction. As I said earlier, you can ignore these dreams or you can try and work with them. And it's, it's you know, you could say that that's a sort of a magical process, but it, it, it is involving if you try to do this, because I tried to do this for a short while. About a minute after waking up, if you if you sit up in bed, you forget your dreams. You know, they're gone. They're just whoosh. They're off. So, you know, you have to scroll them down on a piece of paper as soon as you wake up or they're just disappeared. And that ties in with this, the the whole secret self, the whole hidden internal personality, the self-sensor, the psychic sensor that decides that because we have this sort of traditional, you know, left brain, right brain divide, you know, the sort of the right brain has to go to sleep because it doesn't work with the way that contemporary culture operates because it's 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 sort of irrational and confused, a bit like my thought processes most of the time. And going through these classifications again, you've also got um, Moira, which is a Greek word commonly understood and esteemed during the golden age of classical philosophy more than 2,000 years ago when Athens was the learning centre of the civilised world. Moira signifies the higher calling available to every man and woman their real life's work, not necessarily or usually the job they perform in order to earn a living wage. And I think I've rephrased some of these classifications myself. Uh, just in this book that I, I wrote in very detailed fashion. So, you know, it's the idea that this is your, and again, weirdly enough, this is like my calling, this sort of, you know, perverse obsession with, you know, all these strange topics and how that has sort of guided me in a roundabout way to, to being on Paratopia, you know, and to talking about this stuff. And you've got transformational experiences as 17, and I put down 18 as summoning of heroes, which is... A similar thing I talked to be about, like with Grant Morrison's pop magic, the idea of, you know, if you have a dream whereby, you know, I think there was a book written a while back. I think I mentioned Madonna rather randomly, but there was a book written years ago about, uh, I think there was a compilation of people's dreams of Madonna. Now, I've never had a dream about Madonna, I have to say. Uh, that's Miss Ciccioni, I think, rather than, you know, the Madonna. But... It's the idea that if you have these dreams about, you know, god forms or, or servitors or spiritual beings that are just sort of things that are, you know, it, it's a co-create, that idea of co-creation, you know, whereby you're sort of, you're, you, it's a combination of stuff that exists in culture, you know, and your own cultural biases and your own sort of experience of reality and your own lifestyle and your cultural background and where you come from and how you've grown up and all that sort of thing, your class and all that rubbish, that combined with this magical ether field of intelligence or whatever it is that exists and how your internal 
personality works with this field or intelligence that may or may not exist. So that was basically it. That was, you know, you've got Frank Joseph who wrote these classifications for analysing your dreams. What you can then do is every night, if you have a strange dream that makes no sense, you write it down in a particular colour. Uh, and then you wake up in the morning and you go about your day, your day. And then at the end of the day, you've got to come back and write down what happened to you during the day. And how what happened to you during the day relates to what happened in your dreams. So... As I said, I found this very overwhelming after about six months and had to give up because it was, you know, it, it. I don't know if it led to anything necessarily because the thing is, as I said earlier, my approach now, having looked at Chaos Magic and having been through that sort of trying to look at my dream analysis thing and having, you know, having had these weird experiences, which I've gone over in my head with the, you know, the transparent beings that I've seen, you know, and this bicycle man person who floated through my window and was on the wall and what did that mean was that all part of the same thing was it all things that we can dig up on our subconscious was it all just dream imagery that in some way is connected to trying to evolve the human consciousness and move us from a place of non-understanding into understanding or was it you know non-locality was it something communicating from a parallel universe into our universe so, I, I mean, the problem with this is, you know, at this point, you know, I feel like this, this, this show's sort of gone to, gone to pot, really, because it, I've been throwing too many sort of ideas out here, you know. But as I said, I had these three main ideas of, you know, my experiences and to put them up against quantum mechanics and dreams and synchronicity and cares magic. So I, I'd like to think that, you know, I've done that to some extent anyway. So apologies if you heard any peculiar drilling noises there. <laughs> you may or may not have done, but it's not the evil chaos servitors trying to drill through from a parallel dimension and, you know, destroy all of reality. It's just, this is like the trickster phenomena popping up again because there's people in the next room along from me that are trying to fix some plumbing. So <laughs> so there's some unusual drilling going on. But um, uh, keeping on with the whole idea about dream analysis, right? So like I said, you know, I was trying to work with my own dreams and then I gave up because it was too confusing and too sort of weird. Uh, but looking at sort of dream analysis, uh, so you've got Keith Stevens, who was another guy who was on dream analysis. Uh, and I'm going to get into Nazi reptilian dreams in a minute. This is going to be really exciting, <laughs> hopefully. So Keith Stevens extended the sort of theory of dream analysis to all human instincts. And this is picking up on Freud and Jung, uh, including the ideas of threats to self, threats to family members, pair bonding and reproduction, inquisitiveness and challenges, and the drive for personal superiority and tribal status. He categorizes dreams using a... I'm on, I'm on Wikipedia here, I have to warn you. Uh, the neutrality of this article might be disputed. The neutrality of this podcast might be disputed. He, uh, Keith Stevens categorizes dreams using a sample of 22,000 internet submissions into nine categories, demonstrating the universal commonality of dream content and instinct rehearsal. See, now this ties into what I was just talking about, about the sort of paranoid sort of um, anxiety dream, whereby, you know, you dream about stuff that is troubling you in the real world, and it sort of manifests itself in your dreams. So he talked about the universal commonality of the dream content and instinct rehearsal, and he postulated that the dream function is automatic in response to the content exercising and stimulating the body chemistry and neurological activity that would come into play if the tsunami were covered in real life, so that the dream does not have to be remembered to achieve its objective. Now that makes me think a lot about the sigil magic and the idea of charging sigils. 
So the idea is you you have to sort of on some sort of level send this intent out into the world and and let it work its way without you having to dwell on it. If you want something to change within yourself and that idea of personal betterment and self-improvement and slightly psychoanalytical sort of making yourself better, you just have to do something that sort of generates this principle of change in yourself. Uh, and going back to good old Wikipedia, our friend, it is argued that once a dreamer has experienced a threat in a dream, either to self or a family member, and this is still quoting the thoughts of Keith Stevens here on Dream Analysis, his ability to confront and overcome a real-life threat is then enhanced, so that such dreams in both humans or animals are an aid to survival. The threat rehearsal can be specific, for instance an attack from a savage dog, but it can also be general in that the threat response physiology is activated and reinforced while dreaming. Also, in terms of status, dreams of being superior to others, or conversely to being inferior, uh, come in the two extremes. They stimulate the dreamer's determination to improve their status within their immediate human hierarchy, either through the positive physiology of success or the negative physiology of failure. Hence, dreaming promotes competition, the survival of the best and fittest, and a steady advance of the human species. So, that's a bit of a lengthy and perhaps unnecessarily convoluted definition there that I've just read out to you off of Wikipedia, perhaps apropos of nothing. But, this is actually, you know, leading me quite nicely into what I'm going to talk about now. And I don't think it's ever been mentioned in Paratopia. There's a medical condition called Capgras delusion. You know, I mean, sure, maybe people have read about this, which is a psychosis, perhaps, you know, or our mental issue whereby you know people start fearing that you know immediate members of their family or their close relatives or friends have been replaced by identical duplicates or clones you know and this is almost like a sort of a paranoid body snatchers sort of scenario and um i've had a handful of dreams like this over the years just just dreams here and the emotions of these are always incredibly vivid and unsettling and tying into that last quotation i was making there about how uh, Keith Stevens suggested that what happens to you in dreams is like a rehearsal for real life in many ways. Like if you dream about being threatened, it works through these issues about what you do if you're threatened. And that's like a sort of evolutionary motion. So by, you know, you, if you have a dream about being attacked by someone, then you wake up and there's a part of you that thinks, yeah, I know how to deal what happens with how to deal with what happens when someone attacks me. So, talking about Capgrass delusion, which is, you might know where I'm going here, right, but I'm about to bring up the lizards, right, as the great British sitcom, Faulty Towers, to, to completely misquote it, uh, don't mention the lizards, I did once, but I think I got away with it. So, I have these recurring dreams, especially when I was younger, when I was really young, I had these recurring dreams, uh, and to mention, you know, to bring in about sort of pop culture, sort of sci-fi references, you know, the TV series V, right? which has, you know, just been resurrected, and there's this new version of V on at the moment. And for those of you who know Doctor Who, you know, I used to have these recurring dreams whereby, you know, I was living in this... Well, I say living. Once again, it's still just dreams. I was in this sort of situation whereby I was in this World War II scenario, like I was in occupied Poland or whatever, you know. And, like, my reality had been overtaken by these evil beings that were almost like reptilians, you know. Oh, he said the reptilian word. And, you know, and you go into the whole David Icke thing, this whole sort of paranoid thing about thinking that there are things, that, you know, that are evil reptiles that are taking over. And I had these recurring dreams about 
there was these sort of evil sort of pseudo apocalyptic evil nazis just sort of um almost sort of archetypal evil forces that were sort of taking over and i said about doctor who it was either if you know doctor who there's the, there's the daleks in doctor who which are like this you know they're this basic nazi analog these sort of robotic machine things that scream exterminate and want to you know they're intolerant and they're hateful and they're nazi and they want to wipe out all you know original thought and individuality so i used to have these recurring dreams whereby i'd been this sort of situation whereby the country had been taken over by evil robots or evil reptilians or evil nazis often these dreams would be quite disturbing and quite upsetting you know when i woke up from them but you know i always woke up and thought oh well it's just a dream you know and mentioning the the thing about rehearsing survival instincts and stuff like that it's more like a sort of a primitive programming almost uh you know the dreamer's determination to prove their status within the human hierarchy you know so so you dream about you know uh oppositional forces coming up against yourself and then you learn how to overcome them but um yeah so i've had these weird recurring dreams and just to quickly go through a few of the other sort of recurring dreams i've had or weird dreams i've had you know and what these might potentially mean and relating back to the frank joseph idea of decoding your own dreams you know i've had the odd sort of ske again sketchy memories of some of these perhaps that ties in with the whole thing whereby i'd seen these you know had these experiences of wheat seeing you know beings or or these sort of cardboard cutout sort of shadow beings you know and the and the bicycle man you know i had this weird dream where i was working with some sort of a computer and it was almost like a sort of a quantum computer like it was information encoded on water uh, and I had another dream where I was flying in a stealth bomber and feeling that the stealth bomber was alive, which was pretty weird, you know. And once again, yeah, once again, clarifying, you know, maybe I'm crazy, maybe it's just a dream, but, you know, or what it signifies and, you know, some sort of a pointer towards personal knowledge and self-improvement or whatever. But those were just random things. But uh, one I really remember, which was pretty weird, which I had about, I don't know, six or seven years ago was whereby I was, I answered my front door, I, I, I went outside my front door, and at the door, on the sort of the doormat, sort of looking up at me, there was three dogs, right, just ordinary dogs, they were like sort of little dogs, I'm, I'm, like little sort of puppies, uh, and they were, they had pointy hats on, which was really odd. Uh, they had they had like little sort of pointy hats, like the idea of the dunce that you know sits in the schoolroom corner or whatever. Three little sort of tiny like little poochy dogs with pointy hats on at the door, and one of them sort of leapt up and bit my hand, right? And it sort of bit my hand, and I looked down at my hand, and there was a big hole in my hand where this dog had bitten me, and there was no pain or anything like that. There was no sense of pain, but there was a big hole in my hand and no blood or anything like that. So. So I remember waking up from that one and thinking, God, that's weird. I mean, honestly, what is the significance of these sort of things, you know? I mean, how is that supposed to... And this was a really lucid and clear, vivid sort of dream. Uh, I had another one years and years ago where Peter Pan was in my garden, in my, my house. And I looked up and saw thousands of UFOs in the sky. And that's the, the only sort of thing that I can remember about that dream, you know? <laughs> I mean, what does that mean? Seriously, that's just mental, isn't it? It's quite, I feel like a lunatic sort of reciting these sort of things, you know. Because they're the sort of things they do sort of stick with you. Because they are so bloody strange. 
You know, I mean, dreams are fine, but, you know, things like that are just odd, like three little a- sort of, I say alien dogs, but, I mean, mentioning Whitley Strieber again, I mean, he's often spoken about how aliens apparently come in threes, they come in a triad, you know, if you've read his book, The Greys, you know, his fictional book, which has got lots of really interesting ideas in it, but, you know, he talks about how the aliens always apparently, the aliens, whatever they are, you know, these beings always work in packs of three, you know, and this weird idea of these three dogs that had pointy hats on, and if you want, if you want to get into weird symbolism... That sort of makes me think, again, I mentioned leprechauns before when I saw this weird sort of hopping shadow being that looked like a leprechaun. Supposedly, leprechauns wear little hats, don't they? And there's this, obviously, there's this weird thing in alien encounters. And, you know, Jeff obviously has spoken about this when he saw that being when he was, you know, very young and it had a Chinese rice paddy farmer hat on. And there's this odd, these odd little things that just don't seem to make any sense, like with the whole hat man phenomena. Why do people see, you know, little people that have hats on? What does that have to do with it? You know, why do these people need to wear hats if they're, you know, if these supernatural beings wear hats? It just seems so peculiar. And then if I have these weird, vivid dreams of these little dogs wearing hats, I don't think this was a screen memory for alien abduction or anything like that, because I really, as I said, I don't have any recollection of ever having any memory of or a dream whereby I ever saw any sort of an alien or a grey or anything like that. Apart from one single dream where I was in a restaurant with a thing that I thought looked like a grey alien, you know, and I was a bit scared to look at it. I was sort of looking in the other direction. But there was this little grey alien sitting at the table, or, or some sort of an alien being, you know, which was kind of weird. That was a vague sort of a dream. But And I've also, we're going into even more crazy territory here, uh, I've had some, I've had a handful of really vivid, you know, sort of lucid dreams whereby I, I felt like I've been in a secret military base, you know, and there was one dream I had where I felt like I was on another planet, you know, I had a sense that it might have been Mars or even the moon, but yet it looked like Earth. And I had another one whereby, you know, I was on a space shuttle and I was sure I was going to the moon, you know, and I still recall it now as if it actually happened, you know, like, of course, remember that time, remember that time when we were on the moon, you know, I, yeah, I went to the moon. To tie that in with chaos magic and, you know, dream analysis and the whole idea of quantum mechanics and superposition and parallel dimensions, you know, you can drag it all together and say this symbology, this really abstract, really surreal sort of Salvador Dali style Freudian crazy sort of David Lynch movie imagery that tends to crop up in these dreams. Is this all for a reason? Is it pointing us towards some sort of a point of understanding? Is this to do with the whole emergence of change in static systems, the whole trickster phenomena pointing us in, you know, some point in 2012 where we're all going to have some grand evolutionary sort of understanding experience? And just to sort of conclude the talking about dream experience thing, that is the problem for me, is that I do tend to reach dead ends with a lot of this thing. And that's what's almost, I'm almost frustrating myself in doing this show, is that I wanted to come to a sort of conclusion and I fired off on a lot of tangents and a lot of sort of subcategories and, you know, I haven't really gone anywhere. I've just got rounded circles. And that is the problem when you try to look at this stuff is that you can come up with theories and you come up with ideas and you can make little connections and look at the synchronicities and interconnectedness. But you always wind up facing a sort of a dead end and a locked door because if, you, if you're going to be rational about it, if you're going to be sort of sensible about it and sceptical, then... There's not really any way, I don't think, to come to a definite conclusion where you can just stand up and say, yep, it is definitely this. Thank you and good night. Everybody else is wrong. Because that's just such a wrong 
way to come at it from. As far as I can see, it's, it is like a fundamentalism. If you come up with one decided on absolute definition, then why are you necessarily right? You know, you have experiences absolutely different from another person's experience. And you can't really know what another person experiences. So how can you come out and say that you're right? So to, to, to sort of conclude the dream thing, I had one dream, actually, this was two days ago. And this is probably completely tied in with the fact that I've been dwelling on this crazy idea of, you know, dreams affecting you and affecting your interpretations of stuff that happens in the real world. Is I had a dream about um, someone I know came up to me and they hold a, held a Stanley knife to my eye and they threatened to kill me in a really nasty, threatening, evil manner. And I woke up from this really disturbed and quite upset. And I thought, well, why did I dream about that? Because this person I was dreaming about, I would never conceive of them wanting to kill me. What does that mean? I mean, is that going back to the whole thing I was just talking about, the, you know, the, the sort of the survival instinct training that you get in dreams? The Keith Stevens thing about human instincts and survival of the fit and whatever is that I'm dreaming about the fact that, you know, somebody's going to threaten me. And then should that ever actually ever happen in real life, which it probably won't, because I don't tend to get into those sorts of situations where people are pulling knives on me. I'll know how to sort of cope with it, because I remember in that dream, I was very calm and I was very rational, even though somebody's pointing a knife at my eye and threatening to slash my throat. This weird sort of persecution thing, I was thinking, yeah, this is okay, I can cope with this. And then I woke up and had a sort of great sense of relief. It's like, oh, it's okay, it's just a dream. And just to totally contrast that, a couple of days before that, I had a really fun dream, which was just really surreal and weird, where I was in New York. Uh, again, you know, and I haven't been to America, I've never been to New York, so this is going to pull me right back to psychogeography, which I mentioned a little bit before, and then I went off in another tangent. But um, now I had this dream where I was in New York. Now, this wasn't New York as I'd imagine it is today, or I'd imagine it was anything like but the idea of psychogeography is the idea of um, building up a sort of a version of a place that is sort of fictionalized to some extent and coming out of situationism, you know, and uh, relating it to your own personal sort of ideals and inspirations. Uh, so this New York was almost like a sort of a fantastical TV, you know, I mean, obviously most people in the Western world and probably across the world have this notion of America that is probably informed by movies and TV, you know. Uh, and New York is obviously a place that, you know, seems to be this focus of obsession for, you know, so many filmmakers and writers and all that sort of stuff. So I was in this New York, which was like a fairy tale version of the real world. You know, it was a sort of turn of the last century sort of gangs of New York vision of the place. And I was hanging out in the corner with like graffiti artists. And I was blaring, you know, actually, bizarrely enough, I was, you know, the music of LCD Sound System, if you know that band funky electronica band and I was playing this music and it was sort of permeating throughout the city and there was also a a, a biscuit or a cookie shop uh, which was staffed entirely by beatniks and they were all cats uh, so this has got nothing to do like you know felines so the, this has really got nothing to do with anything it was just a weird dream I had a couple of days ago and it was like the best urban fantasy novel ever you know I mean that was just like a fun weird crazy out there dream so what sort of relation does that have to my real life? Is that supposed to be pointing me in a, to a, towards a place of human evolution or self-betterment? I don't know. It was just weird. So, right, so keeping going with um, talking about psychogeography sort of in relation to um, dream landscapes and the idea of psychic dream walking and astral travel even maybe. Uh, 
Uh, but psychogeography, without going to masses of detail, because, you know, I'd probably have to research it for, you know, weeks, but broadly speaking, it's a version of a city or a place, you know, which is sort of built out of a collection of cultural interpretations and impressions and may well be, you know, entirely divorced from the actuality of what the real place is really like. And this is the sort of thing that pops up in dreams, you know, when you have these recurring dream scenarios. I mentioned the Hospimol, which is like this weird sort of city place that I go that I often, you know, sort of seem to see recurring in my dreamscapes, you know, which is like a hospital and a and a and a massive sort of shopping centre and mall. Uh and this brings me sort of back right around to what I thought I was going to talk more about in the first place when I thought about doing this show, which was memory. The idea of how memory works and how, at least for me, it becomes very sketchy and intangible in regards to trying to remember things and details about my own personal experiences. Uh, like the weird stuff with the the strange being that I saw in, with my brother and things like that. For example, I mean, talk about psychogeography again. I know a lot of people who are big Smiths fans, you know, have an idea about what Manchester is like. The great legendary English band the Smiths and Morrissey. Uh... And uh, there's this whole thing, actually this was in a book I read, which was, I think, talking, I can't remember who wrote it now, but it was, uh, it was sort of analysing and breaking down the lyrics of the Smiths, and it talked about that psychogeography and how so many people, you know, across the world get an idea of what, you know, Manchester is like, where the Smiths are from, where Morrissey's from, and this is really an internalised psychic creation, you know, and it's likely to be very different from how the actual Manchester is today, you know, or... I haven't actually been, by the way. I've been to the old New York. I've been to York, but, but you know, this 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 impression of the actual Manchester this comes filtered through you know Morrissey's lyrical approach to writing songs and his artistic turn of phrase, coupled with his own worldview and how this interacts with the listener's own personal life experience. And that is the same thing with dreams, is how you know. You, you dream about something and you interpret it through your own cultural lens and your own religious background or whatever, and your own personal biases. And, you know, I know Morrissey is huge in Hispanic countries, which might seem odd to a lot of people who might think, how can people from such a background identify with a guy from the North England writing about the context of the early 80s and talking about cultural touchstones like 60s kitchen sink dramas and... Palari, which is gay slang, you know, and there's all this deeply homoerotic stuff in Morrissey's lyrics, which he, you know, is very cagey about. But people get it, you know, across the world, you know, and pick up on this imagery, you know, and it's the same with all art, you know, it doesn't matter where it comes from, you know, or what the particular background is behind it, you know, you connect with it, or art or film or music or literature, despite gulfs of, of understanding and experience, which exist between us all, and barriers of understanding absolutely break down. So, you know, you, you come at something from your own perspective and the individual perspective is absolutely 100% key in this. Be it, you know, the interpretation of art, the interpretation of how magic works, the interpretation of how you work with potentially existing god forms or with servitors or with spirit beings or ascended masters or infinite windows as i mentioned before that i put a name to these things i saw in my sort of dream experience and this is what sort of happens when we have these peak experiences we go in we can go into this place of you know jan fries's deep mind of jung's collective unconsciousness this sort of psychogeography this architecture of our dreamscapes this our our internalized mental self and when we go to these places the aluna which, as Barbara Threecrow talked about, 
do we find gnosis and understanding when we go to these places you know it's all about what we have to do to get there it's a personal process the shamanistic journey that is our lives as we all move either consciously or unconsciously towards that place of potential alchemical transformation that place in mind where we can all meet and just get along even if we can't in the real world so here we've got the that thing i mentioned about the capgrass delusion which is this mental condition whereby you think that people have been replaced by doubles in this sort of body snatcher scenario and david ike who was somebody i just wanted to mention in a sort of peripheral sort of sense you know if i'm sure you all know about david ike and his you know crazy blood drinking parallel universe 11 foot shape-shifting reptilians so and then this is looping back to crazy paranoid dreams i've had i'm not paranoid by the way I don't think anyone's out to get me yet, apart from perhaps all the Paratopian audience when they listen to this. Uh, you know, looking at the shadow self and this idea of internalized sort of secret personality, which I mentioned before. And, you know, I, again, I'm probably quite ignorant on this. You know, there's probably a lot of written on this. But I don't honestly think that any of that stuff has a lot of basis in, I don't know, reality. Like, I mean, I'm sure you've all heard people talking about this stuff or writing about this stuff, this really sort of extreme, paranoid, nasty, unpleasant stuff that this is an evil cult that are, you know, this sort of Masonic, you know, Bilderberger group that are planning to kill us all and wipe out, you know, I don't know, nine tenths of the population. And, you know, these apocalyptic depopulation events, you know, it, it hasn't happened yet, has it? You know, I'm kind of getting impatient for that. You know, I'm, I'm waiting for the lizard men to show up and eat us all. I mean, V said that was going to happen back in 1984, which for, I think it was 84, wasn't it? Which for the Orwellians out there, you know, you can make some other non-existent connection, you know. And the new version of V, which I mentioned earlier, is still sort of suggesting the same thing, you know, on a sort of pop culture level, you know, that these evil aliens are coming to get us and they still don't seem to be here. And So, uh, so I was reading, you know, and researching this book that I'm trying to write, you know, this fiction book. Uh, I was reading the account of this woman who talks about who, since she was an infant, she was basically used as a sex slave and involved in satanic rituals, and she was basically conceived in order to be a tool of this evil satanic Illuminati conspiracy that runs the world. And she was apparently encouraged to dress up as a grey alien when she was a child, because she was apparently stripped naked and covered in flour, and, and they put a stocking over her head and put goggles on her. And this made her look like a great alien. And this was a plot of, you know, the Nazi elite that runs the world, allegedly, in huge inverted commas. And, you know, she was sent into people's bedrooms to represent an alien. And this was a strange sort of setup scenario. So the aliens are really old Nazis. But anyway, that's all just weird stuff that I read about. Uh, so I read all of this stuff about all this crazy, creepy, you know, disturbing, apocalyptic Nazi alien stuff about how the aliens are coming to get us in 2012 and kill us all and wipe out half the population and microchip us all. That stuff's all fun to read and all, but, well, it's not fun to read. But, you know, I mean, I've had these recurring dreams since I was a little kid. So I know these apocalyptic scenarios are kind of common recurring dreams. You know, if this all goes into the anxiety, unprocessed or or repressed desires and emotion you know and you can put freudian explanations onto it and you can say it's symbolic and you know the previous thing i was saying about rehearsals for sort of human evolution yeah I'm, I'm hoping there are at least a few people listening to this who have had these sort of apocalyptic dreams where there are sort of you know evil forces taking over the world but 
is it possible, right, that a lot of this stuff, most of us sane people process these buried fears of the other, which is how I see it. You know, I see it's this sort of unconscious fear of the other, which could mean anything. It could mean, you know, it could mean that which it just means that that which is different from us. The other also being the unseen, the occult, the hidden, all these words basically meaning the same thing. The the opposite, the, the sort of the reflection, you know, the, the shadow self again, you know, I mean, in these dreams, we can look at these things and we can deal with them in our own internal dream states. And then to bring up people like, I don't know, Alex Jones and David Icke, I mentioned before, you know, who write about all this crazy stuff. Possibly, you know, that these people don't deal with the trauma of this and internalized thing and they start to project their own repressed fears and sort of personal issues out into the real world and start seeing these evil demonic conspiracies by making connections where there are none. That's what paranoia is, right? I mean, David Icke said the first thing that set him on his path combating the evil Illuminati Brotherhood or whatever it was, you know, was a feeling that some unknown or unknowable force was watching him from afar. That is paranoia, right? So then obviously the first thing you do then is you go and see a psychic, which is what he apparently did. I don't know, I mean, is it some sort of persecution or anti-messiah, messiah complex? Is there some sort of hamarsha or fatal flaw in these people where they see seem to be looking at the universe through grey lenses, pun intended? Uh, so, I mean, you, you know, you can put that down to cognitive memory biases, confirmation biases tied to putting everything down to being, you know, aliens or whatever, and it's like... That goes into like schizophrenia and people with mental issues, you know, persecution complexes and whatever. And, you know, you could even sort of tie that into some sort of to religious fundamentalists or extreme right or left wingers. And this is sort of dragging me back to another point I wanted to make about extreme uh, polar viewpoints. Things that are just radically opposed to each other. And that's the problem when you try to sort of look at this subject when you try to look at anything that's supernatural or paranormal or esoteric or alien or whatever you know you have these radical polarities that come up against each other here is a quote from david ike right just to come back to him again interestingly conventional science has documented that the reptilian part of the human brain the r complex as they call it is the source of the following behavior traits an obsession with ritual cold-blooded behavior territorialism this belongs to me and an obsession with top-down hierarchical structures. This sums up the Illuminati mentality perfectly, and it goes that if you have more of that R-complex, or that it is if, if it is activated more than normal, you will manifest these traits far more profoundly. Uh, and then, naturally, you know, like an idiot, I went to Wikipedia to look at the, the, the reptilian complex, which is something I'd read about before but had forgotten the basic details of. So, Wikipedia, the god of all things, says... The reptilian complex, also known as the R-complex or reptilian brain, was the name McLean gave to the basal ganglia, structures derived from the floor of the forebrain during development. The term derives from the fact that comparative neuroatomatists, neuroanatomists, once believed that the forebrains of reptiles and birds were dominated by these structures, McLean contended that the reptilian complex was responsible for species-typical instinctual behaviours involved in aggression, dominance, territoriality, territoriality even, and ritual displays. Now pay attention to this, an, an obsession with top-down hierarchical structures. I mean, isn't this a thing David Icke was talking about? 
but isn't this obsession what makes the evil Illuminati Masonic our complex brotherhood so evil? Isn't David Icke against all this, and why the hell is he espousing the same of them? So we can see this point where opposing polarities begin to meet and sort of cancel each other out, or become the exact same thing, you know? You've got a really aggressive territorial point of view that apparently exists, and then supposedly the opposite of this comes along and espouses a sort of aggressive territorial point of view and tries to cancel out the other thing. And this is almost comes back to survival of the fittest, you know, one idea versus another idea when they're just fighting each other. And if these top down hierarchical structures, these mythical rules of the world, these wills of the wisp and these crypto terrestrial space brothers who are so obsessed with ritual and territorialism, you know, why are they coming right out of our heads and into the open? If, like I'm saying, all these things are aspects of the same phenomena why are they so obvious to us you know if this is an evil takeover why has it presented itself to so many people and so many people are talking about it it's like all the conspiracy stuff all these people who are revealing the truth about the evil forces that are trying to destroy the world why do these people learn all about it if these evil forces are going to do it why don't they just do it like i said you know it was you know, this was going to happen in 1984, so Orwell said, you know, still hasn't happened yet, you know? Is it going to happen in 2012? You know, when's it going to happen? I'm kind of bored of waiting for the end of the world. This is summoning, you know, this is evocation, communion, psycho-spiritual intercourse. Throw whatever terminology you like at it. This point of view, this is a self-contradicting scenario of fact. It's impossible, yet possibly so. And, you know, back to this again, I said this before, well, I think I said this before, what if all of supernatural, paranormal, paranoid, conspiracy, ghost phenomena, what if all of this is just spells that we are casting without us even realising it? You know, it's this idea of co-creation of reality. It's 50% us and 50% them, whoever them are. There is a common commonality between all of it. Even if you don't want to say it's there it kind of is there and obviously there's differences here and there and you can come at it from different theories but in recent weeks you know I, I like i said i've seen this sort of synchronicity kicking off in my in my life you know even the whole thing whereby that you know jeff and jeremy have decided that you know they want to they wanted to give paratopi over to the listeners you know and now i'm on this show and i'm talking about this rubbish you know <laughs> I mean, I'm talking rubbish, not Jeff and Jeremy. Is this acceleration towards a singularity? Probably not. Or is it the trickster working through Paratopia and infecting its listeners with a thought meme or servitor? Or they are activating some sort of a hyper sigil. You know, they're sh they're thrusting this creative energy out via the medium of podcasting. And it's affecting uh, society in some sort of a, you know, a, a positive fashion. And spreading the god form all over us unfortunate people just like treacle or equally maybe this is you know us drawing connections confabulation borderline personality disorder schizophrenia we're into some sort of a paranoid world where we're becoming myopically obsessive about non-existent things that are going on i mean what we should do of course is just strip everything back to a clear stringent regimented scientific hierarchical patriarchal western mindset view of the world then we'd all be fine and all the silly nonsensical fantasy stuff would just go away. 
and would be like Houdini, you know, disproving the Cottingley theories, you know, whether he did or didn't, or, or Charles Fort with his cynical unbelieving of, you know, religion and of supernatural phenomena. But it doesn't go away, even if it doesn't immediately present its um, it, its truthfulness to us. You know, it, it just keeps going, all this weirdness. Which suggests that whatever it might be just might be alive and it might be living and breathing and thinking like we do. Except that we can't understand it and we we may never do. So full stop, you know, put a full stop on it, you know. It may never come to a conclusion, we never understand it, you know. Again, Whitley Strieber, just to mention him again, one thing he's mentioned is he had a theory where he was talking about the idea that, you know, his visitors, whatever they are, that are visiting him, uh, he had a theory at some point whereby he thought that they might be just machines, that they might be just a machine intelligence, they're intelligent, but they're weird. I think he used the word weird to describe the idea specifically. And he spoke about that time he heard strange cries in the woods outside his house, outside his, his cabin, you know, and he heard these strange cries and they sounded mechanically generated. And that they were somehow trying to summon him or something like that, you know, and he thought that, you know, maybe this is some sort of a ultra advanced machine intelligence from far in the future, you know, and it was traveling back in time or whatever to try and interact with us. And it's confused and it's basically insane. You know, I mean, that was kind of almost like the gist of the, what he was getting at. And it's like, well, what are we going to do then? What if the aliens are in a crazy, insane machine intelligence from the future? What are we going to do with that? You can't work with that. You know, we're playing snakes and ladders here. <laughs> That's just, it's just impossible. Science and religion basically posit that there are forces most of us don't understand, and these forces continue to fuck with our lives indefinitely. They also both suggest that in some ways we never die, we're all made of stars and we all have immortal souls. So when you break it down to that level, there's no real difference, you know? You take religion and science, chuck them together, and duality sort of breaks, and... I mean... You know, I'm not wrapped up in either end of the spectrum, religion or science or even the supernatural element. They all fall together for me, really. In recent years, I've started to, you know, just see the, the confluence and the way that all these things pull together. And, you know, it all looks the same, you know, depending on what cultural lens you look at it through. They're all very similar and they all go through similar processes. So, so, so what is sitting behind religion and science and the supernatural phenomenon, the trickster and UFOs and aliens? When you pull aside all those blinkered ideological fundamentalist ways of looking at the world, what do you see then if you strip away your own personal sort of ego-based understanding of the world? Whatever it is, uh, it still doesn't look like the answer. You know, is it like with, you know, Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the, the Galaxy, you know? We might wait for the supercomputer deep thought to come up with the answer of 42 as the ultimate answer, but if we don't know what the question is, then we're still screwed when it comes to the understanding front. Right, so now I'm trying to, I'm going to try and batter along and, you know, try and bring this to a conclusion now, because I think I've been really going on for far too long now. I was going to say some stuff about uh, remote viewing, you know, and non-locality, you know, and Russell Targ sort of spoke about the non-localized universe and the fact that all we are is non-local. Non-locality is basically normal in remote viewing, independent of space and time. You know, awareness has access to all of space-time. There is no separation. You know, that's like Einstein's spooky action at a distance, you know, except it happens on the inside. These spirits and beings and whatever are coming from inside. That's what I think at the moment anyway. 
But there may still be aliens coming from other planets, maybe. You know, ghosts coming from, you know, the, the, the spirit side, maybe. And looking back on, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, you, you we had Rudy Shield, who was on the Paratopia and spoke a lot of really strange stuff, you know. I mean, I was actually, when I was listening to the episode with Rudy Shield of Paratopia, I was sat there taping, taking notes, you know. And this was, you know, ages before I thought, you know, that the opportunity to ever do Paratopia would ever pop up, you know. And there was all that really crazy stuff. He was talking about microlensing and dark energy fields around black holes, information being transmitted faster than light through the use of quantum holograms, which are made out of irreducible bits of knowledge uh, that can be transported by the mind. And all that stuff is really fascinating to me. But, you know, I struggle to take my head around it sometimes because, like I said, I'm not very scientifically minded, you know. He was talking about the fact that uh, you can interrogate black holes faster than light with your mind and the onion-skinned layers of past lives put information back together regarding a departed soul and wormhole connection to consciousness does not die but instead leaves some residual uh in our space time which is all really fascinating stuff and a semi-transparent image of the person remains here and that's ghosts which is which is fascinating really really weird but anyway just just trying to hammer through my notes. I mean, I've got too much stuff here. That was the problem with this show, really, is that it just, you know, the idea of doing this sort of fires you off in so many other sort of directions. Aha, synchronicities, right, coming back to that, right. Uh, this is another thing I've noticed recently. This was spoken about in the Rudy Shield episode of Paratopia as well. You know, the idea uh, that when a word or phrase is spoken on TV, say for example, I mean, this is something that happened to me. This is like an informational feedback loop. When a word or phrase is spoken on TV seconds after someone has spoken it or read it, you know, like sometimes I, I like to multitask. Like I'll be sitting reading a newspaper and the TV will be on in the background or the radio, you know, and I'll be sort of not really listening to the radio or not really watching the TV or not really reading. You know, I'll be reading the paper and I'll read a phrase like a really, you know, like just like a really peculiar obscure abstract sort of a phrase and then seconds later it'll repeat on the tv you know or on the radio and this happened to me you know about three about four or five days ago you know i was just sat sort of flicking through a paper or something and the tv was on in the background and just randomly to myself i just sort of said a phrase out loud and then seven seconds or so later it was on the tv it repeated and it was just why did that happen and that was something Rudy Shield spoke about, the idea of, you know, information being sort of compressed from one level of processing or understanding to another low of one. And that was like a sort of a higher level data compression of reality. And that ties in with quantum theory and the idea of, you know, stuff existing in, you know, higher universes or string theory, you know, being sort of crunched down into our level, sort of falling through space down into our level. And this was the informational feedback loop that it's sort of collapsing down and that we are the basic subset of a higher program or programming language. Does that mean then that there's something at the end of the feedback loop? There's this Mobius strip that's going on between ourselves and whatever else is out there in the universe. You know, who of what is it? Do we need to break this, you know, left brain, right brain divide? You know, the sort of the rational and scientific, you know, the sort of the rational and scientific versus the abstract and the creative and the emotional side if we can do that you know if we can do that through meditation or magic or through you know interaction with spirits or meditation or whatever 
do we then see into the insides of our own minds? I mean, if the universe is a living entity and we're just antibodies or oxygen rushing through someone else's blood? I mean, what if life is one big video game being played by 4D quantum giants? If our avatar or character loses a life, do we just come back and play as a different character? What happens when the game crashes? Is this what happens when we have these anomalous experiences? Do we need to keep looking into our own dreams and try and pick out truths from pieces of people that we used to know or maybe still know or or beings that we can find to interact with that may or may not exist on some level? And in them, can we find the answer to all that there is and can be? And going back to Marek, the guy who wrote that essay you know, that I referenced earlier, I mean, he said the fundamental principle of chaos magic is that it replicates the non-ordered flow of phenomena in the universe, which, you know, is another one of those really sort of broad statements that sort of suggests that anything can happen. You know, I mean, does this communion or interaction with these spirits or possible entities, whether we've made them up in our own heads for creative purposes through magic or, you know, these are things that we remember from our childhoods or whatever, does this lead us to a sort of a place of gnosis, you know, empty-mindedness, samadhi? You know, does this make us an indigo child, you know? <laughs> so, going back to the trickster again, uh, many native traditions... I'm back on Wikipedia again, unfortunately. Uh, many native traditions held clowns and tricksters as essential to any contact with the sacred. People could not pray until they'd laughed, because laughter opens and frees from rigid preconception. So trying to tie this idea of laughing into chaos magic, you know, this idea of silliness, almost. The idea that, you know, you look at phenomena and paranormal stuff and it's all kind of preposterous and ridiculous. Uh, if we take the intent of a sigil spell as being the same as potential buried desires for a reunion and reintegration with the other, you know, trying to, you know, interact with this thing and make it work with us, then is it possible that this is, you know, that never mind putting magical terminology onto it. Is it possible that this is some grand magical work? Our lives, just just being alive, you know, is a process. This sort of shamanic journey into the dark side, into the dream state, into the aluda. We are forever in search of the truth about this thing whether active or passive, because not everyone worries about this sort of thing, you know? Not everyone encounters it in their day-to-day -day lives. Not everyone wants to, and that's probably a good idea if you can just stay away from it, because it does exist, whatever it is. Even if it doesn't exist, it does exist. So we get this sort of, you know, self-contradictory duality thing whereby it tries to cancel itself out, you know, by saying, oh, well, scientifically, this thing doesn't exist. This contradicts with the established sort of you know, mindset of the Western world. It can't happen. You know, it's not real. But yet it is. So there we have the Schrodinger's cat type equation. You know, the cat is both alive and dead. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, is it possible? Can you run and escape, you know, this phenomena once the trapdoor has opened and swallowed you whole? To quote Pete Carroll, the case magician again, uh, this is in relation to dreaming. The magician aims to gain full access to the dream plane and to assume control of it. The attempt to do, to do this invariably involves a magician in a deadly and bizarre battle with his own psychic sensor. 
which will use almost any tactics to deny him these experiences. So you're in a battle with your own psychic sensor, according to Pete Carroll, in trying to go to the dream plane. So if we take the magician as representative here of the experiencer and the dream or even dream time, you know, this shamanic journey of life as we know it as the experiencer, uh, and the psychic sensor as the other hidden occult unseen trickster alien ghost god form, then that sort of makes some sort of a crazy sense. So, you know, we're all magicians, basically. We're all magicians trying to cast spells. We're all experiencers going up against the dream. We're in a sort of a battle state with this dream, this shamanic battle. We're going through this dream time state or whatever, you know, and at the end of it is the psychic sensor, this hidden other, this internalized, buried aspect of the psyche that is trying to block this stuff out and trying to remove it from our own understanding. Like I said about, the, you know, the things I saw, it's like somebody's taken a pair of scissors and chopped these things out of reality. They're invisible. They've been removed. They've been taken out. They've been censored. They've been wiped out. Who's taken them out? Why have they been taken out? Have they been taken out because they will contradict our Western mindset, patriarchal view of the world as how the world is supposed to be? So who is the trickster, if I'm going to blame the trickster? <laughs> Us, probably. Using that word in a literal sense, uh... Probably us, our hidden self-editing selves, the ghostwriter within, redrafting our own lives. Here we see the observer observed. Our own minds could be looking out for us, picking us up when we fall down, tying our shoelace, patting us in the head and sending on our, us on our way, correcting us when we get the words wrong. I mean, all this phenomena, the trickster stuff, could be the structural emergence of this god form, this hidden internal intellect, this Wi-Fi cloud of understanding, this deep mind or quantum interconnectedness or collective unconsciousness just bursting from the, the marginal to the mainstream. And whether or not that has anything to do with 2012, I doubt. I mean, I think we're all sort of wrapped up in our own time frames, you know. I mean, the world was supposed to end in 1900, wasn't it? So it depends on what place we're coming from. Either it was going to be the turn of the millennium was going to be in the world and now it's 2012 and then when the world doesn't end then and when the aliens don't land then we'll just move forward another few years. I mean I said primitive programming earlier on. At some point I think in our respective life timelines on this planet it's arguable that something is perhaps done to us for some reason. By something. And this is perhaps for our benefit and perhaps on some interactive level between us and them, perhaps us and it, perhaps for the benefit of all humankind, this is this process of evolution. Uh, maybe it's a shamanic journey again. Barbara Three Crow spoke about um, telling dreams and about holding focus and communion as you go into sleep. And she mentioned asking questions to receive information, which, you know, I, I spoke about before. Allowing yourself to go into that intermediate place between waking and sleep and allow another entity or force to come into you. Uh, and she even mentions windows of opportunity. And, you know, that really seems to tie into my experiences. You know, when I spoke about these things, I called the infinite windows in that visionary dream I had where I was sort of sending energy into these mysterious windows while I was flying about the place. Uh, and like I said, there was these two sort of alien doctor beings in the other dream experience. And, you know, I sort of want to call them our complex deities in that they sort of might have come out of my reptilian complex. Who knows? Or these shady god forms 
that I can see as being connected, perhaps on a sort of crazy level. And uh, this is, again, going back to dream therapy again, you know, who are you asking your questions to if you're going to, you know, try and go to sleep and ask a question and expect an answer? Who is this question going to, to, to who is this question aimed at? Is it aimed at you, your, yourself or someone else, you know, your internal self? Which internal self? You know, is this another person that lives within you? If an answer comes, if an answer is presented, if an answer comes forth, who is answering? Maybe meditative practices are the key to these types of experiences that sort of put you into this, these places, right? So I was at a book festival recently here in a little town I currently live in called Alapool, which is way up in the Western Highlands. And there was a book festival recently, and one of the speakers at this festival was a guy called Humberto Akbal, who is a Guatemalan shaman. And although I didn't actually see him speak, uh, because I was going to a different thing, a different little event at the time, so I missed his speech, uh, he was having his poetry. He's a very well-noted poet, and um, his poems were being translated from Spanish into Scottish, actually, <laughs> you know, like Scots uh, language. Uh, he actually did a rain dance on stage uh, during his little talk, apparently. So we heard and I saw him coming at the building afterwards and it was it then rained for five minutes after he'd done his little rain dance. So so that was a little bit of evidence for me, you know, seeing the guy do, having seen the guy heard the, the guy did this and see him coming out the building and then having been told, hey, this guy's done a rain dance. And at the time here in Olapool, it was really beautiful weather. You know, it was incredibly hot and sunny and warm. And yet it took a Mayan shaman to come and do a rain dance, you know, a poet <laughs> to dance for the rain just for the fun of it. And then the rain came down for five minutes and stopped again and the sun came back out. So... So that was my, you know, rather limited experience of the Mayan culture. So so maybe the world is going to end in 2012. If the Mayans said it was going to happen, you know, it probably, if they can make it rain in Scotland in, you know, like pleasant weather, then anything's possible. So, uh, so that's it. I think I'm finished now. I still have some notes in front of me, but, you know, they go into slightly abstract territories now and slightly weird poetic rambling. So I'll try and hold off on that. So... Uh, just to try and confuse, uh, just to try and confuse, just to try and conclude, um, uh, there was this phrase that sort of kept coming back to me while I was coming up with all this stuff, and it was, um, who knows what the magician has hidden behind the curtain? So that was my summing up of the entire show. Uh, what does the magician have hidden behind the curtain? We don't know yet. I mean, I think of that amazing scene, for those of you who've seen the, the communion movie, where the Whitley Strieber character, because, you know, I don't think it's really actual Whitley Strieber, it's Christopher Walken doing his, hey, I'm Christopher Walken thing. Uh, and he goes to confront the visitors back at his cabin, and he goes into this sort of crazy dreamlike encounter that's, you know, more like a David Lynch film to me than anything, you know, Strieber actually wrote about. Even though I think Strieber actually wrote that film, didn't he? But maybe it got messed about with by the studio people, I don't know the exact details of that. But, you know, I think this whole scenario is completely fictionalised and he sees this magician, you know, in coat and tails and top hat and it's him. And standing next to him, there's the magician's glamorous assistant who is his wife, who is grinning blankly to, because perhaps to some extent she is locked out of the trick, you know, the, the illusion, which is presumably only for Strieber's benefit. So we're looking into the mirror, right? And I mentioned mirrors before, you know, you look into the mirror, what do you see? Uh... 
maybe it's not us staring back. <laughs> you know, who knows what's staring back out of the mirror? Who knows what's stood behind the curtain, messing about with us, waiting in the wings to interfere? And I wonder if this isn't always going to be the case until, you know, human civilization reaches its, its inevitable end. Because if the spaceships have been coming here since forever, why won't they talk to us? Do they just not like us? You know, maybe we're just gits. Maybe we're just unpleasant people and they don't like us, the alien people in their spaceships. Uh, so who is this magician figure, this conjurer, this trickster, this illusionist? You know, are they pulling back the veil bit by bit or are they just continually tugging in front of our eyes for a laugh? If the, um, the curtain you know, is ever pulled aside by the magician. You know, maybe we'll just see our own faces reflected back at us. Maybe we'll finally see and recognise that what is inside is outside, which is the point I've, in a rather roundabout way, been sort of hammering for the whole duration of this rant. What is inside is outside. It is us and we are them. We're all together. Here is our Zen contact revelation, all wrapped up in lies and subterfuge, you know, subterfuge and counter move. And disinformation and confusion and illusion. Is it better to allow structure to emerge from the anti-structure or should we just ignore it? Allow it to work subliminally without our abject, conscious, you know, ego-driven knowledge of the process interfering with things? We're all just works in progress, really. We're just human beings, you know, just sort of muddling along. Maybe eventually we'll get to, you know, some sort of a point of understanding. Maybe it's necessary to just let go of that rational, hierarchical, right brain, you know, Western mindset structure. Kill the self. Tell the ego to shut up, because I'm talking. I'm always reminded of a diagram, you know, in an old ancient paperback copy of Chariots of the Gods I used to have. That used to have that picture of a Christmas tree and the space rocket. And the general gist of it was, Christmas tree or space rocket? Coincidence? I don't think so. But, I mean, it seems to me that maybe we're just having a one-sided conversation with the phenomenon. I mean, I certainly feel like I am most of the time in that we're not getting any answers back. But again, maybe that's the point. Maybe it doesn't want to tell us anything at all. Maybe it's still hiding everything behind the curtain. So just for now, I'll call it emergent lifetime synchronicity. This is something that's pointed out by dream analysis and has been pointed out by sort of thinking about quantum theory and thinking about chaos magic and all that sort of thing just little connections stuff that happens in my life uh i mean is that an indicator that i mean i'm sure if all of you want to go looking for this stuff if you're not already looking for it it's there and is that an indicator that we are in fact accelerating towards some imitated eschaton you know the singularity this ray kurzweil sort of thing is imminent where we'll turn into you know intelligent machine people and um you know i've listened to a lot of radio shows i've read a lot of books and here we are you know 20 something years later i'm 31 now and after a long time spent internalizing this stuff and perhaps breaking it down on a subconscious level maybe now it's emerging into the light i've spent like what feels like quite a long time talking to myself and now perhaps finally i'm talking to some, to some other people and hopefully at least to some sort of a ham-fistedly sort of confused sort of attempt to, to try and spread some tiny shard of enlightenment and shine some light into the darkest places. Although maybe in many ways I'm just talking to myself. And that might be the point of it. Maybe this is something we should all do a little bit more often. 
free of any stringent constructing constricting world views. And if we just sit still and listen to our own voice, maybe eventually we'll finally hear ourselves. Our true voice might emerge. I mean, who knows in what form or in what place, but if you know, in danger of ending on a bit of a new agey note, the new age hasn't happened yet. With a bit of luck, when it does, we might set up a notice and get a little bit of spiritual feedback. And I'm finished now. <laughs> so thanks very much and good night. I'm away now to lie down for a while. And just to conclude with, I think, a, a sort of quotation from Grant Morrison, you know, the guy who wrote The Invisibles, which is a comic which I mentioned before, uh, right towards the end of that series, he comes up with this phrase, uh, time is the soil in which we grow. And I think that's pretty much about appropriate, you know. Time is the soil in which we grow. I'm finished now. Bye-bye. And I'm finished here as well. Join us next week. And when I say us, I mean Jeff and I. We will both be here for a very special interview with one Travis Walton. Anyone ever heard of him? Hmm? Uh, so that's next week. Jeff and I tying up the laces, pulling up the bootstraps, and going to work here on Paratopia with Travis Walton. And thanks again, Colin Reed, for doing the extended two episodes. Mucho gracias, Highlander! Ah, and one final note uh, before I forget yet again. Um, the Teokasin ghost horse trip to South Dakota for yours truly is off because he couldn't get enough people to take a van, so he's going to fly, which would cost me in the realm of two grand with accommodations and all. So that's way too much money. I can't afford it. Um, as I said on the message board, anyone who donated who wants their money back, just let me know. Just uh, shoot me an email, paratopiapodcast at gmail.com, or request a refund through PayPal, and I will get that out to you. Um, don't feel any shame in asking for your money back. Uh, and thank you for all who have already said, don't give me our money back. Great. I won't. Have a good night, everybody. I'll be sleeping on a bit of your cash. 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 You know, I could really go for a red Kool-Aid with a crazy straw and a Pop-Tart with lots. You've got to think outside the box.